Well, let's pick up where we left off. We've been in the series, Whatever Happened to the Power of God. been starting to look into what has caused the issues that we, we see today in the church. We've got a very weak church. There's no question about it today in America. It's not the case around the world necessarily, but definitely the American church infiltrates and influences the rest of the world. There's no doubt about that. You see it. When I went over to the Philippines, I was amazed of how much of an influence that the American church has had on the church over there. That they were trying to copy things that they'd seen and, and stuff like that. Stuff that's really they shouldn't have been copying. Stuff that they shouldn't have been doing necessarily. And see, we've lost the heart of God in what we're doing. Because what we've done is we traded in the power of God and we've got this form of godliness that we, we like to make ourselves feel better about. We like to, in, in, in a denominational sense, that we belong to this, and therefore because of this, I am right with God. Or I went to this church as I grew up, I was baptized in that church growing up, I, uh, I went through confirmation, whatever the case may be, and therefore I am right with God. But those two things don't necessarily have anything to do with one another. You also got the examples of people who, when they come into the church fellowship, that they can just sit there and be content, and all they're looking for is something that's encouraging and building themselves up. Because what will happen is in the last times that people with itching ears will heap up for themselves preachers that will tell them what they want to hear. Because we're not on a truth quest, we're on a happiness quest. In life, and especially in America, we have been told that we should chase our dreams. The problem is, is that if our dreams are contrary to the dreams that God has, then we're chasing after the wrong thing. We're chasing after riches, we're chasing after uh, societal stuff, we're chasing after things, we're chasing after status, instead of chasing after God. You see, the church in America is a lot like the church of Ephesus, that we've lost our first love. We no longer love God to the degree that we're willing to give up anything and everything to follow Him. Because we want an element of comfort. We don't want to get up early. It, it, it amazes me. I've heard people say, I just have such a hard time getting out of bed on Sunday morning to go to church. But yet, they work all week long and they're never late. they got to be there by 8, be there by 9, whatever the case may be. What is it different about Sunday? It's not a matter that I can't. It's a matter that I won't. We just have to be honest with ourselves. I don't want to get out of bed. I don't want to go and do this. I want to just be there when I want to be there. And that's fine. That's a decision everybody's got to make. But it's like, what happened to us and our heart chasing after God? Because we no longer do that. You see, Jesus, when he said, pick up my cr your cross and follow me, what do you think he meant by that? He didn't mean, it's like, listen, I've taken the cross here, and so, so you don't have to do anything. Yeah, that's true, in the sense that we don't have to do anything for our salvation, but there is an expectation placed upon us. I mean, imagine, if you will, that somebody takes over a large company that's been handed down to them from their father to their son. The father built it up, did everything necessary. The son's job is to now go in there and run it. And all he does, he goes in there, he goofs off, he doesn't take it seriously, and what's going to happen? The thing's going to crash. You see, we have a problem here in the United States today is that from the pulpits today, we're not hearing truth anymore. We're not hearing the truth of the Word. We're not exegeting Scripture. We're not going through and breaking it down and seeing what it has to say, what God has to say on any subject. What we've done is we have bowed down to society and let them infiltrate us. Instead of the church infiltrating the world, the world has infiltrated us. We keep trying all these methods and things to make a church bigger, to make it grow. Instead of doing what we should be doing, and that is preaching the Gospel. Following the example of Jesus, that he went around teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel and healing sick. But we don't do that today because we don't want to get uncomfortable. We don't want to do what it takes to get uh, ministry done in the United States. When you look at El Salvador as an example, when they get done with service on Sunday morning, they then go and hit the streets and start evangelizing the streets. That's a big ask. 
I mean, how many of us would be willing to do that every single Sunday? Now, you could make the argument and say, well, they just don't really have anything else going on. Their life is terrible. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe we're too distracted. Maybe we've got it too easy. I remember when 9-11 hit, I know most of you in here remember this day, but I remember it very vividly. For two weeks after that, people were flooding the churches looking for answers. And it waned pretty quickly. But suddenly it woke everybody up. It's like, boy, we're not immune to this kind of stuff. We need to seek after God. Why does this happen? And what happened? Once the crisis was over, we go on about our lives. I see it all the time. I see when people come to me and, and you know, there's something's going on in their life, whether it be a marital issue, a personal issue, whatever the case may be. And the second that the crisis is now gone, they kind of start drifting away. They're there every week. I hear from them all the time. They need my help. And as soon as they get to where they no longer need me that often, they kind of just disappear. Happens all the time. I wish I say it didn't, but it does. It's the same thing here. When we look at the parable of the four soils, we have a body of believers that come together here, and we look at this and we're like, okay, we're going to go out and evangelize. So if we're going to evangelize, we expect to see something, right? Well, the problem is, is that three out of the four soils are producing no fruit, one of which doesn't get born again because the enemy comes in and takes that word that was sown in their heart, lest they become saved, two of which they give their life to Christ, but the deceitful niche of riches, the cares of this world, all of this other stuff, the fear of persecution keeps them from ever producing fruit. And then the last group, the last 25%, if you will, will produce some fruit, but some's going to produce a hundredfold and some's only going to produce 30 so some is better than none, but boy, I don't know about you, but in my life, when I stand before God, I want to be the hundredfold fruit. I want to have something I say, God, I did this for you. I don't want a participation crown that I'm going to throw at His feet. I want one that I went out there and I earned. He says, I'm giving this to you because of what you did. Now I was like, I'm giving this to you because, well, everybody else got one and that's how y'all did it down there. You see, that's the culture we have, is we just assume that we're all just going to get it and all of that stuff. What happened to the heart of God? The church has lost it. We stand around and cry, and we're all worried about end time stuff. When is Jesus returning? My hope is it's when I'm dead. When I'm good and gone. Because now I have time to reach out to my friends and family and loved ones that do not know the Gospel. Because if He comes soon, they won't hear it. That bothers me. It should bother you. You see, the power of God has waned because the church has become weak and pathetic. We don't put in the effort anymore. It's like we don't care. We say, God, thank you for what you did for me. Now, let them other people figure it out on their own. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. We've read this every week. But know this, in the last days, which we are here, perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, and they're unthankful. They're unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying His power, and from such people turn away. Think about unthankful in that list of things. You've got a list of stuff that we would consider pretty bad. And unthankful is just stuck right in the middle of it. And see, when you have a grateful heart, when you're so thankful for what the Lord has done, that you will do anything for Him. Anything. You know, one of the privileges I have in, in being a pastor is I work with people and I work with them often, and you get to watch them transform. And there are times that they come back and they're like, what can I do for you? 
Because they're so grateful for the journey that I helped them on. And I know that's true for many of you, but I, given what I do, I do it a little bit more frequently. And the truth is, is the only thing you can do for me is to go do for someone else what I did for you. That's it. Because that is the kingdom. But we don't want to do that. See, we're not thankful enough to God for what He's done. Next week, we're going to celebrate what we call Easter and ultimately the Passover, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How many of you guys are moved to tears out of thankfulness for that? Or how many of you guys have taken it for granted that, yeah, He did that, that's great, I'm saved. I am thankful, but not enough to let it impact my life. Just get real. We stand around and ask, why doesn't God move the way He used to move? Why isn't God moving the way that He did 20 years ago? Why isn't God moving in those revivals of old that we've heard so much about through the years? But we never stop to look in the mirror and say, maybe it's because of us. Maybe we're the problem. See, we want what we want, but we don't want to put any effort in. You see, 1 Thessalonians 5, we read this last week. It says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. For this is the will of God. We want to do the will of God, but we don't rejoice when things are hard. We only rejoice when things are good. We get what we want. We get that promotion at work. We get that new car. We get that new job. We get that new house. We get whatever it is that we wanted and we've been praying for. And then we're like, man, God is good. Look what He did. But when persecution is coming or things aren't going well or you hit a financial hiccup or whatever happens, we're not sitting there like, man, look how God, good God is. What do we do? We gripe and we complain. We're not thankful. We're not praying without ceasing. We're not giving thanks in everything. We're sitting around and whine and cry. Because while we should be on meat, we still are on milk. We ought to be teachers, but we still have to be taught the first principles of God. Because we don't press in. We're drifting aimlessly. We want to sit around and we want to be fed and we want that Word. Give me that Word. Give me that Scripture. But we don't want to press into it. We don't want to go and take it up for ourselves. And on top of it, that Jesus says that my meat is to do my Father's will. What should that mean for us? It should mean the exact same thing. That we are not satisfied until we have served that meal to somebody else. But that's not the church that we belong to. The church that we belong to is one that wants to sit around. You see, we want to thank God when He does something for us. But in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 10, it says, look at this. Therefore David blessed the Lord before all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, the majesty. For all that is in heaven and earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom. And you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor, they come from you. And you reign over all. And in your hand is power and might. And your hand is to make great and to give strength to all. Now therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I? and who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this for all things come from you and of your own we give or we have given you he's not thankful for what God has done he is thankful for who God is he's listing the attributes of God we're thankful that God is good but what makes God good is not giving you your dream or giving you your wish what makes God good is his character is goodness he is the very definition of goodness and there is no one in between you see, we only thank and praise God when we get what we want. We've never gotten past that. We sit around and wait. We want to go to these special services with this evangelist so-and-so that's got this certain anointing and this gift, and we want to be prayed for, and we want to feel the Holy Spirit and all of that. And those things aren't necessarily wrong in themselves, but when are we going to get past that? 
When are we going to recognize the anointing that's in our lives and the abilities and gifting that God has given us to go in there and do the very same thing? But we don't have to wait for a church service. We don't have to wait for a special meeting because I don't know about you, but I see people downtown all week long. I watch people in that school all week long that need a touch from the Lord, that are sick and need healing, that are lost and need to be found. And inside of us is that message. And what do we do? We wait for somebody else to do it. We always want to pass the buck because that's our society. We wait long enough, somebody will do it. You leave your socks on the floor long enough at your house, eventually your wife's going to pick them up, right? That's how that works. Eventually. Eventually. Just got to wait her out. That's all you got to do. Somebody's going to win that argument. She's in the nursery today. I can get away with this stuff. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, we read this last week, but Let's read it again. Verse 1. Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. So He humbled you and He allowed you to hunger, but He fed you with manna, which you didn't know and neither did your fathers, that He might make known to the man that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Your garments didn't wear out. Your foot didn't swell. You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord chastens you. Therefore, so because of all of this, you ought to keep His commandments of the Lord your God and walk in His ways and to fear Him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs that flow out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which He has given you. But beware that you don't forget the Lord for not by not keeping his commandments his judgments his statutes which i command you today less when you have eaten and you are full and you have built beautiful houses and dwell in them and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold are multiplied and all that you have is multiplied when your heart is lifted up and you forget the lord your god who brought you up in the out of the land of egypt from the house of bondage who led you through the great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land where there was no water he brought water for you out of a rock who fed you in the wilderness with manna which your fathers did not know that he might humble you and he might test you to do you good in the end then you say in your heart my power and the might of my hand have gained me this well and you shall remember the Lord your God for it is he who gives you the power to get well that he may establish his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day then it shall be if you by any means forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and serve them and worship them I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish as the nations which the Lord destroys before you so you shall perish because you would not be obedient to the voice of the Lord your God this is Moses warning to the Israelites getting ready to go into the promised land they're getting ready to cross the Jordan Moses knows he's not going to be there with them because he's not allowed to enter in because of his disobedience that there is a group of people there that are going to be allowed to enter in because of their disobedience but Caleb Joshua and all the young ones are going to go in and he's telling us now listen to me it's been hard here it's been hard in this wilderness, but God has provided. He's taken care of everything that we have needed. But He's done it. He's got to test us so that we know that we trust God. But you're going to go over to that land, and it's a land that God has given you. You didn't buy it. You didn't earn it. He's given it to you. It's a possession from Him. And when you get there, 
There's brooks that are going. There are vineyards that are already grown. There are farms that are planted. There are houses that you will live in. There are wells that are dug. But don't forget who gave it to you. Don't think for one minute that you've become so good at what you do that you built that house, that you created that farm, that you dug that well. No, it is God who gave it to you. And if you forget that in your heart, then you will perish. Because with a thankful heart, you come before God for all that He's done. Does that sound like the country that we live in today? Does that sound like the church that we belong to today? Big C church. It's this way for you guys. It absolutely does. And we wonder where the power of God has gone, but here we are. We're not thankful. We just go through the motions. We just exist. We think, you know what, God, I know that you know, I, I had a good job and now I'm retired and I'm well invested and all that stuff. But we act like that is somehow as a result of us. Yeah, we've got to make wise decisions. But it's God who gives the power to gain wealth. What if God came tomorrow and said, I want you to empty out your IRA and give it to somebody? How many people would do that? Be a big ask, right? Well, the question is, do you trust God more than you trust your IRA? Do you trust God more than you trust your farm, your job, whatever else? Because out of the abundance of our heart, the mouth will speak. How we respond to that situation will tell us exactly where we stand. We have got to get back to where we're so thankful for what God has done, what He has provided, that we thank Him and glorify Him for everything, not worrying about anything. You see, there's so much that we have to be grateful for. As the body of Christ, as the church today, so much, but yet we're not. You see, there's a pattern that develops in the Old Testament that still reigns true today that I want to show you. We're going to start today in Psalm 77. In Psalm 77, we're going to start in verse 10. We read this last week. It says, I said this, this is my anguish, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old, and I will also meditate on all your work and talk of all your deeds. What's he's doing? He's remembering the things that God has done. Imagine David as a young boy who kills the lion and the bear. That he goes and he fights the Philistine and he wins. He's been crowned as king but yet won't take the crown from the current king. That he brings judgment on the men who kill Saul because they shouldn't have done that. God has brought him through so much that he says, I will remember your wonders. I will remember your works. I will meditate on all your work and I will talk of your deeds. You see, when we talk about the things of God and the power of God, the first thing that goes into our head is miracles. We think miracles. We think of supernatural healings and moves of God and things like that. Those are all true. Now, if I were to ask you, what's the greatest miracle that's in the Bible? What would your response be? Anybody? You say salvation. Resurrection. You say creation. What? The birth, of Jesus. the birth of Jesus. All miracles, right? You're going to be shocked to hear this, but the greatest miracle in the Bible is what Yoli said. Think about this. Genesis 1.1 In the beginning, 
God created the heavens and the earth. Now think about this for a moment. In that moment, in that very single verse, God created everything necessary to be made after that. He created time, space, and matter. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He creates those three items, and from those items, He makes everything. But what was before that? Nothing. The most powerful miracle is to create something from nothing. The resurrection of Jesus is probably the most profound miracle in our lives. No question about it. Because it is the Gospel. But if nothing was ever made, it wouldn't have mattered. Right? There'd be no resurrection because there'd be no nothing. There'd be no something, I should say. It's hard to wrap your head around nothing, but nothing is nothing. Aristotle said nothing is what rocks dream about. It's nothing. Out of nothing, God created. That is the most powerful miracle because anybody can take something and manipulate it in one way or another. But to take nothing and to create something, that's a powerful God. Now, when I say that's the greatest miracle, I'm not saying it is the most uh, spectacular or anything like that. But there's a lot that goes on there because it's through that very miracle that the world is judged. Off of that one thing. It's not judgment off of your sins necessarily, but the fact that we are held accountable because of the creation. We see that in Romans 1. Look at Romans 1, starting in verse 16. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Let's stop there for a minute. If you're not ashamed of something, doesn't that mean that you would, without any hesitation, proclaim it at every opportunity? You ever met a conspiracy theorist? I'm sure some of you have. If you don't know that you have, I promise you that you have. But somebody that believes like aliens did 9-11 or aliens built the pyramids, I mean, or the government is covering up all this other stuff. And I'm not saying they haven't. I don't know. Not the alien part. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But... You hear somebody make these statements and you're like, okay. But they are unashamed because they are fully persuaded in what they believe. As crazy as it sounds, like who shot JFK? It's the government. They were covering him up. All this other stuff that goes out there. And all you want to do is you want to put on a tinfoil hat. I may have told you this story, but I had a, a pastor friend of mine. We were eating lunch in a, 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 a little barbecue joint one time. And we'd always sit up at the bar. I knew the owners real well. And we're sitting there eating lunch, and we're getting ready to leave. And we're walking out the door. And there'd been this guy who was hammering drinks the entire time that we were there. And uh, we get to talking about something. And he just turns around, and he says, Did you know that 9-11 was a government cover-up? Out of the blue. I don't know who this man is. And we're like, What? He's like, absolutely. See, the government is the reason that 9-11 happened and that they've covered it up. It was all about money. And he goes on to this whole... It starts talking about everything. And we're like, okay, well, that's, that's great because it's not the discussion I'd planned on having there. And so he says, hold on a second. I'll be right back. And I watched him walk out to his pickup outside. He had a, a topper on, on the back end of it. And he crawls in there as far as he can. And you can watch him just throwing stuff over. And he brings me in a stack of DVDs. And he says... Watch these, then you'll understand. I still have them. I've yet to watch them, but I still have them. This is probably 10 years ago. And 
We're like, okay, buddy, thanks. You know, we shook his hand, and I'm like, oh, thank God that's over with. Because, I mean, it was a little wacko. But think about that for a minute. How much boldness did it take for that man to stand up to two complete strangers and interject a piece of conversation? He was not ashamed of his lunacy. We shouldn't be ashamed of the Gospel. How many of you guys would stand up to two people standing in a restaurant that you don't know and say, do you know what? I want you to know something. That Jesus loves you and He paid the price for your sin. And that needs to matter to you. How many of you guys would take the time to go out to your truck and get a DVD of some sort and hand them like, will you just watch this? And on the back is my phone number. I want you to call me afterwards. I want to talk again. How many people would actually do that? Most of us wouldn't because we are ashamed of the Gospel. If you're not proclaiming it, there's only one reason. It's because we're ashamed of it. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. If that is true, we have the cure for cancer. And we're in a world full of cancer patients and we're just sitting back like, I hope they figure it out. Maybe they'll watch some TV doctor that will give them a miracle cure. You guys, we have it. But we don't believe it's the power of God to salvation. Or we'd be out there proclaiming it. You guys following me? I know this is heavy, but we've got to get this. It's for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. What does faith mean? Belief. Trust in. We trust in the work of Jesus because that is what he says in, in 1 Corinthians 15 that is the gospel. But in verse 18, it says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So what does that mean? They have the truth, but they push it down because they don't want to deal with it. In their unrighteousness, they take the truth and they squash it. I ignore it. That's literally what it means. It's not that I don't believe it. It's that I ignore it. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, here we go, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful. But they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They professed to be wise, but they became fools, and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and bird and four-footed animal and creeping thing. What holds them accountable? It's not the cross. It's the creation. It's the greatest miracle in the Bible. Out of nothing, God created something. And it's through that creation that man is held accountable. If people ask me all the time, what about these, you know, these pygmies in New Guinea that never hear the gospel? They live out there in this world and never hear it. They live on the same planet we do. That God's invisible attributes are seen. There are stories about when Columbus had come over and some of the early followers said, when they got there, there was people, an Indian group, that already believed in the Creator God. And they knew about a man named Nuah who had a big canoe that saved him from a great flood. And that the, the great spirit had told them that there will be a white man coming and will have a book with all the answers that they were looking for. Now how did they come to that information? Because they didn't have the written word. It's the Spirit of God. You see, we're held accountable by the creation. So, everybody is a believer, but what do we do? Because we're unthankful, we suppress the truth. We're not thankful to God for our existence. 
The world is not thankful to God for their existence, therefore they explain how we must have gotten here. Because miraculous and the supernatural cannot possibly be it. Because that doesn't exist. So, the earth is a memorial to the power of God. You guys following me? When we look at the greatness of God, we look at the earth and the entire universe, and we see His invisible attributes and the things that He did in that, and it holds us accountable to the One who made it. You guys following me so far? Because that's important. Because these memorials are what you see throughout the entire Old Testament. Now look at this. Let's talk about Noah. We know about Noah, right? The great flood. The sons of God came down and took for themselves the daughters of men and created a race of giants, the Nephilim. And so God brings judgment on the world. He saves Noah and his wife and his three sons and his, their three wives. He says, take two of every kind of animal, seven of the unclean or seven of the clean, whatever it was. It wasn't just two by two. It was more than that. It starts in Genesis chapter 6. They sit on that boat 40 days and nights. It, it, it rains. The fountains of the deep rise up. There's a lot of water on the planet. And God spares them. Tells them to come into the ark. Their life will be spared. What if he wasn't obedient? He'd have died. Right? But he was obedient. He built the ark. 120 years. Here we go. Verse 9. It's getting towards the end here. Verse 8. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him saying, And as for me, behold, I will establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. So God's creating a covenant. We call this the Noahic covenant. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus, I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. That's the promise of God. This is the covenant. Guys, no matter what happens, I will never destroy the world by water again. That's the promise of God. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all all the flesh that is on the earth. So the promise is, I will never destroy the earth again by water. And he creates a memorial, a sign for God and for Noah that when you see this, you will remember the work of what the Lord did and the promise that God made. When you see that rainbow, you will know and God will know that he will never destroy the earth again by water. Now, it is no coincidence, guys, because everything is spiritual. It's no coincidence that the homosexual movement has adopted the rainbow as their sign. Now think about this. There was a judgment of God that brought the flood. You had a people that were spared. And the sign that God will never judge the world that way again was the rainbow. And here you have the homosexual movement saying, you can't judge me. Using the exact same thing. But the memorial is what I want you to get. You see, it was that way when God said, when I look at it, I will remember what When you look at it, it's with all the earth. Every time you see a rainbow, that should go to your mind. God will never again destroy the earth with water. You notice He didn't say, I will never again destroy the earth. 
Because that's coming. But not with water. You see, this memorial was set up so that he can remember the reason of the flood and the promise of God. So do you think Noah kept the boat around just in case God changed his mind? Of course not. Of course not. He didn't need it. He knew it was done. Well, let's look at Abraham. You guys know who Abraham is? The father of many nations. Okay, Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. So that's the promise. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked to him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but, you, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. And I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make a nation... Make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Just so you know, when God gives you something, I don't care what politics says, that land belongs to Israel. God gave it to them. Verse 9, and God said to Abraham, Abraham, as for you, you should keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child sh uh, among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So here we have another covenant, a promise of God, but there is a sign, a memorial. It's something that when it is seen, it triggers a, an understanding. Now, there's a, a spiritual thing that the seed of Abraham would pass through that covenant into the seed of the woman creating a nation. But the promise is to Abraham that I will make you a father of many nations. And in order to do that, what has to happen? He has to have a child. And that is Isaac. Another promise that is made, that at first he's like, are you serious? Have you seen my wife? She's old. So was he. And they tried to go about it on their own. Didn't work out real well. But eventually Isaac came. But it was the sign of the covenant. It was something that the Jews did, and the Jews alone, that they must enter into the covenant. In fact, when they enter across the Jordan River, Joshua, when he takes them across there, they take three days, and they circumcise all the males that were born in the wilderness, because it was a requirement. If they're going to take the land promised by God, they should really fulfill the covenant that God had made. So here we have, we've got Abraham. We have another thing, a thing that when we look back and we think about it, it reminds us of what God did. Well, let's look at Jacob. Genesis chapter 28, verse 10. Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. And so he came to a certain place and stayed there all night. And because the sun had set, and he took one of the stones of that place and he put it at his head. And he lay down in that place to sleep. It does not say that he used the stone as a pillow, just so you know. Okay, I know cartoons and, and make that, but that's not what it says. It may have, but that's not what it says. Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven, and there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land in which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and the south, and you and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will 
will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. And Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? There is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Then Jacob rose early in the morning, and he took the stone that he had put at his head. He set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of that city had been Luz previously. Previously, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way, I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God and this stone, which I have set as a pillar, shall be God's house and all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Why did he set up a pillar? It was a memorial. It's when he sees this, he will remember that this is the place of God. This is where God was. This is where God revealed Himself to me. This is where God made a promise to me. And now when He saw it, that He would know and He would remember the very promise of God. Fair enough? Are you guys picking up on this trend? Okay, let's look at it again. Still with Jacob. Genesis chapter 31, verse 43. This is a little different, but same, same concept. This is dealing with Leah and Rachel. And Laban answered and said to Jacob, These daughters are my daughters, and these children are my children, and this flock is my flock, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day to these my daughters, or to their children whom they have born? Now therefore, come, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone, and he set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his brethren, Gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they, they ate there on the heap. Laban called it that name right there. But Jacob called it Galit, and Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore, the, this name was called Galit. Also Mizpah, because he said, May the Lord wash between you and me when we are absent from one another. If you afflict my daughters, or if you take otherwise beside my daughters, although no man is with us, see, God is a witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, Here is the heap, and here is this pillar which I have placed between you and me. This heap is a witness, and this pillar is a witness, that I will not pass beyond this heap to you, and you will not pass beyond this heap and this pillar to me for harm. Then the God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judged between us. And Jacob swore by the fear of, the father, of his father Isaac. Then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and called his brethren to eat bread. And they ate bread and stayed all night in the mountain. And early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his sons and daughter and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned to this place. So they have a covenant made between the two of them with God as their witness. But what was there? They set up a pillar so that when they saw it, they would remember that we will not do harm to one another. We will not cross over, and we will not do harm to one another, because they weren't getting along very well. Understandably so, Jacob was kind of set up. Look at it again in Genesis 35, verse 1. Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there, and make an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau your brother. And Jacob said to his household, and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and has been with me in the way which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands, and the earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was by Shechem. And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, when, which is in the land of Canaan, and he and all the people who were with them. And he built an altar there. And called the place El Bethel, because there, there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree. So the name of it was called Alin Bakuth. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padam, 
Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. Your name should not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel should be your name. So he called his name Israel. And also God said to him, I am the God Almighty. Be fruitful, multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. And the land which I gave Abraham and Isaac I give to you, and to your descendants after you I give this land. Then God went up from, this, from in the place where he talked with him. So Jacob set a pillar in the place where he talked with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering on it, and he poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him, Bethel. Why did he build a pillar? Because once again, God made a promise. You see, they continued to do this to build something that when they looked on it, it reminded them of the promise of God. That's the key here, is we have to understand this. But we also see it when they're getting ready to enter the promised land. Because I want you to watch this. Because this plays an important role in the New Testament. In Deuteronomy 27, so still Moses talking. Verse 1, Now Moses with the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I commanded you today. And it shall be on the day when you cross over the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, that you shall set up for yourselves large stones and whitewash them with lime. You shall write on them all the words of this law when you have crossed over that you may enter the land which the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord God of your fathers promised you. Therefore it shall be when you have crossed over the Jordan that on Mount Ebal you shall set up these stones which I command command you today, and you shall whitewash them with lime, and there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones, and you shall use an iron tool on them. You shall build with, uh, you should use no iron tool on them. You shall build the, with, with whole stones the altar of the Lord your God and offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. You shall offer peace offerings and shall eat there. Rejoice before the Lord your God, and you shall write plainly on the stones the words of this law. So Moses tell him what to do. It's like when you get over there, you're going to build this altar, and it's memorial to him. To with a promise, and on this, you have the words of the law, the Ten Commandments, if you will. You're going to write all of this stuff down. So it was always in their remembrance of why they're there and how they got there. Okay? Now, they're getting ready. Moses dies. They're going to enter the promised land. We're going to Joshua chapter 3. We're going to read for a bit here. Joshua rose early in the morning. And they set out from Acacia Grove and came to the Jordan, that's the river. He and all the children of Israel and lodged there before they crossed over. So it was after three days that the officers went through the camp. And they commanded the people, saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the priests, the Levites, bearing it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. Yet there shall be a space between you and it and 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the, the way by which you must go. And you must, and for you have not passed this way before. And Joshua said to the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do th wonders among you. Then Joshua spoke to the priests, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over before the people. So they took the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. So that's, remember, that the Levites were the only ones that could move the Ark. They couldn't put their hand on it. Anybody that came near it was going to die. They had to carry it on those poles. And they were to go out in front of the people. Everybody else has to stay 2,000 cubits away, which is a lot. And the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that you may know that I, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. You shall command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you have come to the edge of the water of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. 
And so Joshua said to the children of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. So now he's sitting there saying, You're going to go through this with confidence because God is going to give you a sign that He is going to do what He promised to do. He's giving the sign ahead of time. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore, take for yourselves twelve men from the tribe of Israel, one from every tribe, and it shall come to pass as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests who bear the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off, the waters that come down from the upstream, and they shall stand as a heap." So it was when the people set out from the camp to cross over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And as those who bore the Ark came to the Jordan, and the feet of the priests who bore the Ark dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks during the whole time of harvest, that the waters which came down from upstream, they stood still, and rose in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zeretan. So the waters that went down from the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, failed and were cut off, and the people crossed over opposite Jericho. Now what does that sound like? Sounds like the Red Sea. They are crossing over on dry ground. The river has been heaped up on both sides. How far it goes, I don't know. But it's quite a ways. Then the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. Now the Jordan's not a very wide river, except when it's flooding. I mean, kind of like our river right here right now. And it it goes quite a ways. All Israel crossed over on dry ground until all the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. So now we're in chapter 4, verse 1. Everybody's going across. And it came to pass when all the people had completely crossed over the Jordan that the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Take for yourselves twelve men from the people, one man from every tribe, and command them, saying, Take for yourselves twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet stood firm. You shall carry them over with you and leave them in the lodging place where you lodge tonight. And Joshua called the twelve men whom he had appointed from the children of Israel, one from every tribe. And Joshua said to them, Cross over before the ark of the Lord your God in the midst of the Jordan, and each one of you take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, saying, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordans were cut off, and these stones shall be for a memorial to the children of Israel forever. Now what's he doing? He is taking the stones as God told them to do, and they're going to set up this memorial. And the purpose of that memorial wasn't just for their benefit, but it was also for the children's benefit. That when the children looked on them, it's like, why is there a pile of rocks over here? And what can they tell them? That on that day, God promised us that we could enter into the promised land. And that He would drive out all those before Him. And He performed a sign, a precursor prior to that, by the Levites stepping into the Jordan. And the water spreading apart and staying apart as we all crossed over on dry land. That's how we knew that God was a fulfiller of His promises. You guys with me so far? Okay, verse 8. And the children of Israel did so, just as Joshua commanded. And he took up twelve stones from the midst of the Jordan, as the Lord has spoken to Joshua according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel. And he carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. Then Joshua, watch this, set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan. So where did he put them? In the middle of the river. 
in the place where the feet of the priest who bore the Ark of the Covenant stood, and they are there to this day. Now, that means that those stones were still there and could be seen at the time that this was written. I don't know how far you know, down the road that was, but you could still see them. So the priests who bore the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord had commanded Joshua to speak to the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. And the people hurried and crossed over. Then it came to pass when all the people had completely crossed over the ark of the Lord and the priests crossed over in the presence of the people. And the men of Reuben, the men of Gad, the half the tribe of Manasseh crossed over armed before the children of Israel as Moses had spoken to them. About 40,000 prepared for war crossed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the plains of Jericho. On the, excuse me, Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they feared him as they had feared Moses all the days of his life. Then the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Command the priests who bear the ark of the testimony to come up from the Jordan. And Joshua therefore commanded the priests, saying, Come up from the Jordan. And it came to pass when the priests who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord had come from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet touched the dry land, that the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. Now, the people came up from the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month. Now, I want you to remember that because next week, I'm, that's going to be important. Okay? Just keep that in the back of your mind. They camped in Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at, in Gilgal. Then he spoke to the children of Israel, saying, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel crossed over the Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea. For he dried up before us until, uh, until we had crossed over, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. And I'll tell you, the people of Jericho heard about what happened with the Jordan River, and it freaked them out. It was a big deal. But why? They set up two memorials, one in the river, one outside. But there was a purpose. And the purpose was that when you see this, and when your children see this, that you remember that you can fear the Lord your God forever. You can trust Him at His Word. You can reverence what He says. So, you teach your children by the memorials. You teach these other people by the memorials. This is a pattern that's laid out. You can go throughout the entire Old Testament. But look at this map. Now, Gilgal, this makes them look further away than it is. Some say it was up here to the north. Some say it was down here to the south. What we know is it's not very far because this space here is not much. There is not much space between the Jordan River and Jericho. And wherever exactly Gilgal was, because they've been ex- uh, excavating, and, and unlike what we have today, it didn't have a sign up that says, Welcome to Gilgal. Okay, so they're making some assumptions. It just depends on who you talk to. But the spacing was not very far. Jerusalem's going to be down here. So they had come up this way down, and then they worked their way ultimately to Jerusalem as they go through and conquer the land. So these rocks, this memorial, are set up right here by the Jordan River. One was in the river. One was outside of the river for the purpose of remembering the promises of God. You know them and you can trust them because this is a memorial to the execution of that promise. You guys see that? Okay, now, what does that have to do with anything? Let's look at the New Testament. Let's go to Matthew chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
For this is he who is spoken by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Kind of sounds like stuff you eat. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. So where do they baptize people? In the Jordan River. Where did they cross into the Promised Land? The Jordan River. Okay? Verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. Now remember, these are the guys giving him problems. Giving Jesus all sorts of fits. What's he say? You brood of vipers. Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you, that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. What stones? The memorial. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he who is coming after me, who is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And his winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. See, John the Baptist is using an illustration with the Pharisees. Now, what were the Pharisees doing? They were leading people away from the Messiah. The Messiah was the sign, or excuse me, John the Baptist was the sign that the Messiah was at hand because he was the precursor. In other words, God gave a sign to the world that the Messiah is here. They should follow Him. And John sees Him. So, they perform, God performs a miracle with the Levites standing in there. He said, this is how you know that I'll do exactly what I say. It was a precursor. They set up these stones there at the Jordan so that every time they saw them, they can remember that God would do exactly what He said He would do. Here's John the Baptist baptizing people in the river and he says, don't think of yourselves because you play a good game. Because you, you keep the commandments. Because you claim to keep the law or you're a teacher of Israel. That you're in. Because God will raise children of Abraham up from these stones. These memorials. I can't say definitively whether it's the same thing, but what other stones could he possibly be talking about? You see, they were hung up on the memorials. John was hung up on whom the memorial represented. The Pharisees and Sadducees had a form of godliness, but they denied the power. The power was coming. We have got to stop doing the same thing. We have got to get back to the gospel. Part of the memorials and part of what next Sunday represents, next Sunday being Easter Sunday, is a memorial to what God has done. That's why we celebrate it. But it's so much bigger than just us. It's so much more. You see, there are things that have happened in our lives that we've got to go look back at and say, man, God really came through here. God really came through there. There are stories that many of you had of supernatural things that God has done in your life. Some of you guys have been saved from the, the pit of hell down on earth. That who you are today is nothing like who you were 20 years ago. 10 years ago, 5 years ago. Because of the goodness of God. We're going to see next week 
what the resurrection truly means and why that's so crucial. You guys follow me so far? This is kind of setting up next week. But we have a memorial before God. And it's not something that we worship. We worship the God of Israel, the God of the Gentiles, the God of all gods, the King of all kings. 